I think the first thing is I don't like calling it a counteroffensive because it's not a direct response to a Russian attack. Um, a counteroffensive is one that you conduct in immediate aftermath of a Poston attack. Welcome back to Uncommon Mutancy, it's Francois. This week I'm joined by both Julian and Jorge for a decency deep dive. On the menu today, Spain, a lot has happened. There's been local elections which have really shaken the Spanish political landscape. We'll talk about it with Jorge. There are now general general elections being lined up for the very near future. What does that mean for Spanish politics and what does that mean for European politics? We'll pivot then to the thorny question of immigration. Where are migrants coming from? Who should be hosting them? How do we spread them out across across Europe? Do we spread them out across Europe? And there's a specific angle at the moment which is making a few headlines. It's the tensions and reconciliations between France and Italy on migration between Macron and Meloni. And for our patrons, we will be having our devil's advocate section where we will be arguing whether the Ukrainian offensive, which has been going on for a few weeks now, has been a disaster, whether actually this is fun and all part of the plan. So join us for that section. Before we move on, I just want to uh, let everyone know that we are reaching the end of the season. As you might have noticed, we were um, a, a bit less re regular in our scheduling over the past few weeks. We are not doing this full time. We've got other jobs and many other things to handle. And so we're reaching the point where we're starting to tire a little bit. So we will wrap up next week. That will be the last episode we'll wrap up on. And also to take a bit of time over summer to think about how we've done over the past few years to reflect on what we could do better. We have actually decided to put a bit of a census below where you can answer a few questions, really shouldn't take more than five minutes, and essentially ask you what you think about the podcast, how you heard about us, what you like, what you don't like, what we could improve for the future. So if you like the podcast, want to help us, there's a fun quiz below which should ask you a few questions about what you think of the podcast and how it could become better for the years to come. Um, let's move on, let's go to Spain. So Jorge, um, before we dive in all the consequences of what happened, actually, can you walk us through what happened in the first place? What has created this implosion of a Spanish political system? Yes, indeed. And thank you, Francois. And I think we have to go back. I mean, we've covered Spain in the past in this podcast, primarily with, with an episode with Michael Reed and Nigel Townsend, which is specifically looking at the memory wars and kind of excluding some of the uh, uh, context that, that, uh, that sort of encircles that question. Uh, but I think people need to remember that since 2019, Spain has been governed by a coalition of left-wing slash secessionist parties. Uh, and the way this government came about is actually really interesting to, 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 to trace back as well. Uh, Spain had been governed since 2015 by a center-right uh, government. Uh, and then in 2018, Pedro Sánchez, who was the leader of the socialists in parliament, filed a, a motion of no confidence against Mariano Rajoy on corruption charges on, on the premise that Rajoy had been too lenient with corruption within his party. That motion of no confidence earned a simple majority in parliament because it was supported by these secessionist and, and far left parties. 
Um, and uh, and then there was a vote on whether to appoint a new government. Uh, and Pedro Sanchez, and there was a, actually a repeat election. He failed it the first the first time, and he he uh, he succeeded the second time, and he succeeded in getting just enough votes from his own party, the Socialists, from the party to his left, Podemos, and from the secessionists from the Basque Country and from Catalonia, who have. Uh, at least parliamentarily supposed, uh, supported his government, if not through ministers, at least with uh, congressional votes. So this has been the government that has been uh, ruling the country since 2019. And what happened recently was that we had uh, local and regional elections scheduled for May, the end of May. Uh, th- this means that people went to the polls to elect their mayors, their regional governors, and um and such. And it was a massive victory for the right. Obviously, the first party in number of vote in sort of vote count was the Partido Popular, the right of center party. But the fastest growing party was actually Vox, the conservative populist party to the right of PP. Uh, Vox actually doubled its vote count relative to the last election in 2019 and trebled its number of local councillors in, in mayorships across the country. And now what's happening, and then the, the actually the the, uh, the, the, the the defeat, the loss was so huge for the socialists that Pedro Sanchez decided to uh, dissolve the court, the what we call las cortes, the parliament, and to uh, call for and to call uh, new uh, national elections on the twenty third of July. Um, so actually, what is already happening in these regions where a, a new, uh, well, actually across many regions. Uh, the socialists have lost, and what remains to be seen is what is going to replace the socialist. Is it going to be the PP on its own? Is it going to be the PP on a coalition with Vox? Is it going to be the PP on its own, thanks to the abstention of other parties? It really, go, it really, it really sort of boils down to parliamentary machinations. Who is going to vote for what? How are these parties going to get enough votes to govern on the regions and appoint new governors? So actually, this is all very important also because it it forebodes or it presages what's going to happen nationally. You know, the, the real question after the July 23rd national election is, is the is the PP going to be able to pactize to ally itself with Vox to form a new government? Because the the chances are that the PP on its own will not be able to to form a new government. It will need Vox if it needs if it wants to oust the government. And the the uh, the um, the likelihood that these two parties get together, get along well and form new governments at the regional level is going to give you a sense of whether or not they'll be able to do it at the national level. So that's about it. Hmm. So that's interesting because if you take a step back, the last um, four years or so have been an experience for the political left in working with a parliamentary coalition, which was a new experience in Spain. And there's been some pretty tense moments between uh, Podemos, the far-left party, and the Socialist Party, centre-left party. Um, But in the end, it ended up working to some extent. Um, So what we could be seeing in the years to come is the same experiment, but on the right. Can the right work with a a junior, probably, coalition partner, which would be Vox, how that work? Um, And... If the example of the left is an example for for the right, it's that um, radical parties entering coalitions, especially as junior partners, end up losing a lot of their kind of 
anti-establishment edge and energy. So it'd be quite interesting to see, first of all, how does Vox do at a local level? Do they, is there going to be like scandals which are going to sap their credibility? On the contrary, will people get used to those kind of uh, local officials and think, okay, well, maybe at a national level that could work? And yeah, how's that going to translate at a national level? It's going to be really fascinating. Exactly. And I guess the other, that's exactly right, Francois. And I think the other piece of news to sort of highlight is that just over the past day, really, I mean, last night, over over yesterday, throughout yesterday and through the day today, there has been a lot of hand-wringing in Extremadura, which is traditionally a fiefdom of the socialists. The socialists failed to get a majority. The most voted party was the Partido Popular in the like, well, I think the first time in history, really. And the leader of Partido Popular in Extremadura, who is supposed to be the next regional governor, she actually uh, she actually uh, is rejecting Vox. She doesn't want to she doesn't want to pact with Vox. And the, she says, you know, Vox is a bunch of uh, retrogrades. They oppose. They they deny climate change. They deny gender viol- uh, gender violence, domestic violence. They are a bunch of. They they, they reject the twenty thirty agenda. They're a bunch of uh, national populists. And what is so interesting about this is that the, what this lady has been saying, Guardiola, goes against sort of bucks the what the PP has already been doing in other regions. In Valencia, for instance, it 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 agreed on a government with Vox, a government in which Vox, Vox will have consejeros, uh ministers, regional ministers. Uh there are other kind other regions where this has also been the case. I think the Balearic Islands is another example. And I think Murcia is also sort of in the balance. People are figuring out whether Murcia will tilt right as well. But this is this just goes to show that the PP is not a national party. It has regional uh, branches that decide on policy. This is not being said by Alberto Núñez Feijó, the, the, the party president. Yeah, it's interesting. And I was thinking about it because there's a lot of radical parties across Europe on, on the right and on the left, but they don't always get the kind of, especially the local uh, level, the capacity or the experience of having that kind of hands-on exposure to politics um you know they can stay in opposition for, for a very long time and it's interesting to see that in countries like uh, france for example has never had any serious local responsibilities they've got a few towns here and there but really nothing nothing like the the the, the scale of a, of its appeal across the country and I'm just thinking of a Green Party in Germany, for example. It's really interesting to see that they've become much more of a centrist party, much more of a credible actor on the national level because the parliamentary system at a regional level has allowed the Green Party in Germany to make coalitions, mostly with the left, but also with the right, and progressively uh, up its profile, show itself as a you know as a credible um, potential government uh, party. So I guess I guess it's a quite a crucial moment for Vox because it, if it fails. Then you know this will be the the only metric on which you can judge their um, their politics. Yeah, absolutely. And this is this is really been this is really being a, a litmus test for the party for Vox because you know um, you know Vox will never. I mean, it's just extremely unlikely that Vox will ever be able to govern the nation on its own. It would take extreme 
uh, you know, extremely discrediting actions by the PP, say like a massive corruption scandal or something really huge for the PP to be discredited enough for, for enough voters to switch to Vox and for Vox to become the leading party of the right. I mean, that has happened in Italy. Let's remember that this is exactly what happened with Fratelli d'Italia overtaking uh, uh, Forza Italia. But uh, but as you said, this is really a litmus test for Vox because if if PP sort of slams the door and re refuses to give Vox any ground to be in the government, then the the question the question arises: you know, what's what's the party really for? It's just sort of a protest vote and not really a, an option for for government. So I think that's a, a good pivot to talk about. Um immigration in Europe. It's been a quite contentious issue, at least since 2015. We all remember the uh, big wave of refugees coming in from, from Africa, but also the Middle East. And ever since, there's been very complicated political tensions and balancing acts going on between the different stripes of the political parties in power, but also the different geographic interests so, you know, the, the, the Italian right was not saying the same thing as the Hungarian right, for example, not because they were, had huge ideological differences, both were kind of opposed to, to mass immigration, but because in Italy's case actually was favoring a kind of reallocation of migrants coming to Italy across the continent, whilst Hungary said, no, we don't want any sharing whatsoever. So it's been a contentious point for, for many, many years. Essentially, the, the principle in, in, in Europe was a Dublin principle where refugees who arrived in a country and applied in a country, uh, sorry, refugees that arrived in the country had to apply in this country. And so that meant that countries that were on the front line, especially Greece or Italy, end up carrying the bulk of, uh, of immigration. And so, you know, for example, what Italy would do is sometimes when you had a kind of more right-wing governments, uh, recently with, with Meloni in office, they would refuse boats coming in from, from, from Africa and push them in the direction of France, for example. So, um, this has happened for quite a while, and it's interesting to see that the the, the main angle for the immigration question, it's not like a, a, there's a burning, burning topic at the moment, but the one angle which is interesting is a kind of Franco-Italian angle. Um, a, a, a few weeks ago, in back in May, the Interior Minister, Gérald Darmanin, said that Meloni was incapable of solving migration problems in her country, despite making promises about setting a naval blockade. Um, so what's quite interesting, actually, is... There's been an attempt, I think, here by Darmanin quite tactfully to kind of point on where Meloni is supposed to be strongest. You know, she's a right wing uh, figure. She wants uh, Italy to be strong in immigration. And actually, he's, he's kind of pointing out that so far immigration, or at least if the number of refugees in Italy has surged in the past few months, uh, a lot of it independent of, of Meloni's uh, will. And so you got a bit of an exchange of, of nasty bars between the French and the Italians. However, it's, there's been a bit of a reconciliation. There was the G7 summit in Japan where France and Italy were, were all smiles, Meloni and Macron. Um, and all of a sudden we had another summit here where Meloni came to, to Paris and Macron was highlighting the unique bonds between France and Italy, that friendship that sometimes allow our controversy and disagreement to flourish, but always within a respectful framework that is part of our history, which is bigger than us more profound, but has nourished our imaginations, our artists, and our collective adventures. You know, very kind of Macron flowery style. But it's it's there's a real, real attempt here to, to do some reconciliation. And what's interesting here is, 
and that's not going to make Macron popular to, to, to his left. But there's been a real attempt by, by Macron to kind of push for migration to be dealt, or at least um, asylum applications to be dealt from the country of departure, which means that if you're le- living, if you're leaving a country like I don't know Ghana, for example, or or or, or Libya, you'd have to make those applications in those countries. Obviously, in, in some cases, that's not always possible. Um, and so all of a sudden, you get France and Italy holding relatively similar positions. Um, and to go back to 2015, when the Italians were pushing for a, 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 a fair sharing of the refugee load across Europe, this time, Melania has shied away from that. And the reason for it, apparently, from what, I, from what I've um, heard in French press, is that Meloni is doesn't want to antagonize the Polish and the Hungarians because they know she knows that talking about that is the big red flag. So it's a very interesting topic and it kind of really shows the nuances and complexities of this debate where, you know, your 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 political positioning is one thing, but then you've got some kind of national interest which trump your 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 political positions. Yeah, I mean absolutely. I mean I think I think it's fun that we're having this conversation on World Refugee Day. Um, because, you know, this has been an eight-year running sore for the European Union um, without a solution and really sort of strikes the heart of one of the fundamental problems that the EU has, which is its ability to provide transnational solutions to problems that are inherently about national sovereignty and the tension at the heart of the European project and its relationship with its constituent members. Immigration really strikes the heart of that. And, you know, if we're eight years on immigration and over a decade on banking union, um, I call me skeptical that any solution that is actionable and accepted by the member states would actually come to fruition. Um, well, what's interesting, though, is you can see there's a larger European ambition in, in Meloni's uh, strategy here because she clearly wants to create some kind of block maybe with the the uh, centre-right of a European level, but maybe a bit more to the right of this. And she's building a network in in, in Sweden and Spain. So you can see there's a real attempt to do some kind of some PR and don't ruffle too many feathers across Europe. Um, one of the issues the European right has, at least, at least right of the centre-right, has is they're very fragmented and they're... Uh, often struggle to get much of a strong coalition of parties. They're usually divided. I think Hallway uh, corrected me, but are they still divided in three different parties, or is it two parties? I don't know. Um, yeah, three parties again. Um, so she she wants to kind of build a larger coalition, and Macron also wants to placate a neighbour. Um, just on the side, it's interesting that France. France has always kind of put a lot of its eggs in the German basket, so to speak. And it hasn't done much of an effort to develop a kind of privileged partnership with other countries. Um, I personally think that's an issue because we end up in a kind of increasingly uncomfortable one-on-one with Germany, which has become increasingly the economic powerhouse of Europe. Um, The war in Ukraine and the kind of protectionist winds across the world have somewhat balanced that, but even then France is far behind Germany. So... I kind of wish we had taken the opportunity to kind of have a wider thinking about how we can work with Italy. There's an example which I think is is a little unfortunate. There's the the World Expo for 2030 is being uh, decided very soon. 
And France has, uh, Italy, Rome, sorry, is running to have a position of, um, of host of the World Expo for 2030. The, the mayor of Rome, who's a social democrat, is working hand in hand with Meloni, who is you know, not a social democrat, that's for sure, uh, nationalist. And France decided to back Saudi Arabia. And it's one of those cases where you feel, given how much of a, how big the talk was on European strategic sovereignty, sorry, strategic autonomy and, you know, European solidarity, the rest of it, uh, especially when the French get really angry when other countries start buying American planes, for example, uh, it would have made sense to to think about it and, and at least give some some minimal support to Italy, because I think my understanding is uh, that decision in Rome was seen as, as, as a bit of, bit or very offensive, very aggressive, despite a bit of a warming up on the question of uh, immigration. And, and just to, just to remind folks, I mean, this, this problem, it has been, you know, has been through different routes. I mean, obviously, there are different routes into Europe for, for asylum seekers and economic migrants. Um, but other countries have been in, in, in Italy's position in the past, uh, you know, Spain, uh, noteworthily, it, it, it seems like, you know, uh, the the route through the Canary Islands has been also you know on and off sort of uh, in the past couple of years, and Spain has been having the same problem, although with a left wing government, but has been having the same problem, namely that it lobbies the EU to resettle the migrants that Spain has to welcome, because when you file an asylum claim, you cannot be turned down from the country, you cannot be turned away, uh, as per as per the Dublin Protocols. Uh, against uh, refoulement. And so Spain has also been lobbying behind the scenes, and particularly the regional president of the, of the Canary Islands has been asking the Spanish government to lobby the EU behind the scenes so that there is a fairer uh, apportionment, a, a fairer distribution of the a burden of migration across the member states. But obviously that doesn't go down well with other member states like uh, you know Hungary and Poland and, and others. Okay. So let's go to the devil's advocate section, where this week we'll be talking about the Ukrainian offensive. Can we call it an offensive? Let's call it an offensive for the sake of the debate, um, which has been apparently, yes, the, the, the second Ukrainian counteroffensive, let's call it, or the third, sorry, the third Ukrainian counteroffensive. First one was obviously in the immediate aftermath of the invasion when the Russians thought they could go all in and get Kiev. That didn't work. The second counteroffensive happened over last summer, which was summer, um, September, and which worked superbly well and really shifted the narrative about the war in Ukraine and really created a lot of, of optimism across Europe. And over the past few weeks, months, there's been a bit of a hyping up of the next offensive. We knew things would be kind of frozen during the winter, and people were hoping that the, the, the good, the, you know, good weather in the summer would bring a, another counteroffensive. And so it hasn't been, you know, it's not like they, the Ukrainians one morning announced it and said, you know, this morning the counteroffensive begins. Um, but undeniably, something has been going on, and we'll debate right now in the devil's advocate section whether that counteroffensive is a disaster or whether so far so good it's all part of the plan if you want to listen to that you can join us on our patreon section um otherwise uh, talk to you very soon and don't forget you can rate and review the podcast on 
all the different platforms you can use on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And if you want to help the podcast continue to grow, you can join us on Patreon, as you can always can. But you can also write down what you think of a podcast in our census, which is down below in the comment section. So please scroll down, go in the description, and you can answer many questions, many fun questions about podcasts, so we can give you the very best product we can next year. So let's begin. Um, this time we didn't randomly allocate the positions. Uh, Jorge, you will be moderating. I will be arguing that the Ukraine offensive was a disaster. And Julian will be arguing that the offensive was a, well, maybe not a triumph, but at least not a disaster. Um, maybe maybe we should be, begin with, with some of the facts here. Yeah. Yeah, well, I was just, I mean, just to kind of set up the tables for this debate, and I, I appreciate you um, taking sides. Um, you know, the, the, this has been a long rumored, well, not not even rumored, but just a long talked about uh, counteroffensive. I mean, Julian seems to call it an offensive, but uh, it's it's an it's a counteroffensive that um, that um, even Foreign Affairs magazine and, and an increasing number of, of uh, international relations scholars say has just very little odds of, 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 of being successful. I mean, and this is not just sort of the Mersheimers of the world, the, you know, the, the realist school. This is just an increasingly uh, pessimist tone uh, that is set that is set in across much of uh, sort of foreign policy punditry. So, uh, but uh, Julian, obviously you, you disagree with this, uh, with this uh, tide. Uh, why so? I think the first thing is I don't like calling it a counteroffensive because it's not a direct response to a Russian attack. Um, a counteroffensive is one that you conduct in immediate aftermath or a Poston attack. So that would be the assault on the pushback against the initial assault on Kiev would be considered a counteroffensive. This is just a summer offensive campaign that, if you look at the activity across the 1,000 kilometer front, has barely begun. Um, the total number of brigades I think the Ukrainians have actually committed is only three. Um, they are holding back all of their reserves. They're holding back, crucially, all of their armored reserves. And much of the attacks are just aimed at probing weaknesses in the Russian front to see where they commit their forces. And equally, Russia has increased its airstrikes along the Ukrainian front in order to try and deter um, Ukrainian battery attacks on their own positions. So I don't think much of the, the commentary on, oh, this isn't going as well as much of the sort of more sensationalist news coverage had hoped is fair or applicable because the main thrust of the offensive hasn't actually started yet and probably won't for, well, it might kick off in the next two weeks, um, depending on what weaknesses the Ukrainians find in the Russian line or how Russia reacts. But, you know, I don't think this sort of long floated offensive has really begun in earnest as one might expect. And therefore I don't think you can really judge it as a disaster or something that's working well if the main commitment of resources hasn't occurred. Um, to touch on the general remarks about how this isn't going to be as successful as the offensive last year, um, I think that is, for the most part, true. The gains last year were vast in territory. But I think that in this particular offensive, I mean, again, I'm not in the Ukrainian general staff. I don't know what they're looking at. 
it seems to me that they can make tangible gains that are more politically significant in this offensive than they could last year. So let's say, for instance, liberating Donetsk or clearing the area around Bakhmut. These are wins that the Ukrainian forces could accomplish that would be significant and indicate their ability to drive the Russians out of deeply entrenched areas, especially in Donetsk, where we must remember uh, Russia has been for the last eight years. Um, so too long, didn't read. It's too early to judge the offensive. Uh, I think they will find success in this offensive, uh, in part because of the discordant nature of Russia's command control systems. Um, but I don't think it's going to be the sweeping territorial gains. I think it will be the more symbolic political gains um, that Ukraine will target and indeed will succeed in. But we won't know that for like the next three or four months. Yeah. Will we, Francois, will we know? Is it too early to, to assess uh, the odds uh, that it will be successful, this uh, offensive? What do you think? Well, as we say in France, it's at the end of a ball that you pay for musicians. So June obviously is right to say that we'll have to see at the end. Um, in the truncated words of, um, I forget, one of the, what's his name, one of the former Mao Zedong's advisor, when he was asked to, Zouin Lai, when he was asked about the French Revolution, what he thought about it, he said it was too early to say. Obviously, he didn't actually say about French Revolution. It was about the May 1968 revolution. But please let me keep that example for the sake of my argument. Um, I think what's, there's worrying things going on. The first one is the Russian army seems to be a lot less um, inept than it was last time. It seems that its defense is a lot more stable, a lot more serious. That there's been a much better first line of defense. I think the Ukrainians were expecting a stronger second line and a kind of weaker first line. In fact, the first line has been uh, very strong. There's been a, a much better use of minefields, for example. The... the um, Aerial superiority of the Russians is still very strong. So there's there's a few things at the moment, which means that it's been hard for the Ukrainians to make much, much progress. Obviously, there's been the much touted clips of the uh, the Ukrainian tanks being being blasted by by the by the Russians. So I'm not I'm not, I'm not saying that we are going to see the Russians take back the offensive anytime soon. Uh, clearly, at this point. The, the Ukrainians have the initiative, but what seems clear to me that is, I think, hopes for kind of a quick uh, victory are now completely dashed because I think the plan, from what I understand, from what I've read, I think Mike Martin is a great person to follow on, on, on Twitter for this. The plan essentially was to cut the Russian army between the kind of Crimean pocket and the um, and the Donbass region to the east of the country next to next to Russia. Um, it hasn't worked so far, and I think the 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 blowing up of a dam has been first of all is is, is a war crime, but secondly has also uh, unfortunately managed to stop the, the progress of the Ukrainians by flooding an entire area and making it very hard for for tanks, for example, to pass through that area. Um, so. I think that's my concern. I think we're reaching a position where Russia has enough boots it can put on the ground to make sure that the conflict stays frozen or the attrition rate becomes so strong. And then the real danger here is not so much the, the will of the Ukrainians. Clearly, they know that they're in for the long haul, but it's perhaps the will of the West and the Europeans. Um, 
at the moment, support is relatively strong, but when we did an episode a few months ago on this topic, we were already seeing a, a start of a decline in, in public opinion on the on support for Ukraine. Um, you know, it, it's still above 50%, but it's progressively declining and is above 50, below 50% in some countries. So we had this episode on the Habsburgs, and I'm not sure if you remember, but I asked, I think I asked um, uh, Karen de Gruyter on this, saying World War One had led to the collapse of the Austrians. And so in, in this case, in this case, actually, in... Um, so I, I asked Karen de Gruyter this question saying, when when World War One starts, is, um, in the end it led to the collapse of the empire, and she said yes. But don't forget, in the early early months, it actually was great for the empire. It really created a sense of of solidarity among the different nations with the, the empire. My concern is, as the war progresses, as the cost of it continues to progress, um, with elections coming up, in especially in America, what we could see is a change of climates. Um, public opinion will progressively, I think, start dwindling in its support for Ukraine. And if we don't see any prospects for a for progress, um, then things could get nasty. I mean, there aren't many political initiatives that have over 50% support in most Western democracies. So the fact that Ukraine still does is pretty positive. But also, I think, you know, if you're looking from the US perspective, I think we're going to get the F-16 approval probably in the next few months, hopefully, um, even though it takes about six months to train someone to use those, uh, if only we'd done it last year. Uh, I do sort of expect these things to happen towards the end of the year just to keep up the momentum for Ukraine as we head into 2024, which is obviously a crucial election year for a number of countries. Um, in terms of the military success, the flooding of the dam absolutely has messed with what the Ukrainian plan had been. So they'll definitely have to make adjustments there. But I still think that in a strong enough position where they could feasibly start to split the north and south groups of the Russian forces, or depending on how you group them, army groups one, two, and three, um, to split the different groups of the Russian armed forces invading Ukraine. Um, I think that's ultimately what we'll see as this offensive evolves over the coming weeks and months. But don't put too much stock in the uh, stock footage of burning tanks, because some of the quote-unquote tanks that are allegedly burning don't look very much like leopards. Yes, and uh, I, I, I think I saw some clips of what seemed to be kind of armoured trucks um, being paraded as dis destroyed tanks. And I forget I forget which US official said that the clips we saw about Ukraine, Ukraine tanks were the same five tanks being taken in 1,000 different angles. Um, so there's obviously a lot of propaganda going on here. But I think generally the optics are... The mood has changed because... For you know the offensive last year, counteroffensive over the summer was really successful, and there was a sense that the ineptness of the Russian army, Russian generals, the corruption of the military industrial complex in Russia, which had led to subpar uh, material, uh, leading to the deaths of many on the front. Uh, there was a sense that it was kind of a moment of reckoning for the the, the weaknesses and the crimes of the of, of the Russian regime, and. Now, all of a sudden, the narrative has shifted a little bit, saying, well, Russia is a big country. It can put boots on the ground in trenches and hold for a very long time um, and just hope to, to, to wait out uh, wait out the, the, the way of power, maybe not of the Ukrainians, but at least definitely of, of the Europeans and the Americans. So I think, I think this is also kind of a, it's an amusing read on my part. I mean, I saw an article in the New York Times about this, which has been rather poor in its coverage of the war ever since the first invasion. 
all the adjustments the Russians have made in the war in Ukraine have been tactical rather than strategic. Um, Grasimov is still in charge. He's made multiple strategic blunders over the course of this campaign. And the only reason that Ukraine is facing a much tougher fight in this year's offensive compared to last year is because Russia has made a series of tactical adjustments to be more mobile, um, to focus on defense in a lot of areas um, and employ the low-cost technological innovations that the Ukrainians had already mastered in the early months of the of the war. Um, the fact that Russia still hasn't made a strategic adjustment on its war, well, its war aims are still the same, but it hasn't made a strategic adjustment in how to achieve those and is now falling back on the position of, well, eventually the West will get bored and will stop funding this war in Ukraine, um, to me is one that, smacks of a wishful thinking on the part of the russians and b a fact that they've run out of ideas strategically on how to actually win this yeah. war that they started yeah well thanks Jun. i think we laid out for the case for for both of these and uh, again this is devil's advocate section so we are defending a position still manning it if you want as best as we can so we can get the entire perspective on the issue thanks a lot jorge thanks a lot julian we will be back next week if you like this episode, you can rate and review us on all the different podcast apps you can use. Uh, Apple Podcasts is a big one, of course. Spotify, all of these really help the podcast continue to grow, and we appreciate your support. If you want to listen to the full episode, you can join us on Patreon and listen to this wonderful conversation we just had on the Ukrainian uh, counteroffensive. Has it been a failure? Is it actually all part of a plan? Um, very interesting conversation between the three of us on that topic and for this week especially for this week please do start working on our sensors below which should be in description essentially this is an opportunity for you guys to get your your voice heard on what you like about the podcast what you don't like what you'd like to see for the future what you'd like to be improved Um, we are we'd love to get your thoughts on it we've been doing that for past three years Um, you know we started with with Jorge we've been very lucky to have June join us um, this year we do this part-time so it's taking a lot of time and energy out of us so we want to make sure that when we do it we do it as efficiently and as smartly as possible so that we get the very best podcast possible out there so please do consider going down in the census writing your thoughts on the podcast we would really appreciate that guys thanks a lot and see you all next week <laughs>